0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore the Catholic Church and its recent Synod on the Family, That was held last October, when we talk with Peter Steinfels of Commonweal Magazine. We'll discuss the implications of the Synod for Catholics in America, and why Protestants should be paying attention. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Peter Steinfels. He's the co-founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture in New York City, and he's a former editor of Commonweal magazine. He's also the author of A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America. He spoke to us while traveling to Chicago to give a lecture at Loyola University. Peter Steinfels, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. Well, to start us off, we're recording this interview just a few weeks after the close of the synod on the family. And I'm wondering, as a way of orienting our listeners and getting into the conversation,
1: could you give us a brief overview of what is a synod? What, what is that when we hear that word? A very good question because perhaps the most important thing about this synod was that it actually happened and happened in the way that it happened. A synod is a gathering of bishops – Uh, Synods have been held in the Christian church from time back uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, When bishops emerged as local leaders in the Catholic Church and they wanted to settle some matter of doctrine or a practice, they gathered. Uh, If bishops from all over the Christian world gathered, that was often called a council. If bishops from a region gathered or a fewer uh, number of bishops That was called a synod. Now, synods uh, fell out of uh, practice for a long time because as the papacy uh, expanded its powers to settle disputes in the church, they weren't called upon so much. So in the 1960s, when the Second Vatican Council gathered bishops from all around the world and made landmark changes in the church's practice, uh, the idea of a synod was resurrected, that after the council, we would have periodic synods. Unfortunately, the ones that occurred were cut and dried affairs. Uh, There wasn't real genuine open debate and so on. Now, Pope Francis restored the idea of the synod as the council had uh, wished it would occur. With real open debate, not only that, with having two synods, Uh, over a period of two years, taking up the same subject so that the subject could be opened up at the first one and then explored further and then dealt with at a second one. And in this case, the subject was the family.
0: Well, let's go deeper with that. So why is it necessary for the Catholic Church suddenly to start talking
1: about the family? What prompted that? I'm not sure that it's necessary all of a sudden. Uh, It could have happened at a lot of times in our history when – uh, there were changes in family life, stresses and strains on the family and so on. But I think the contemporary world, you're seeing that at a more rapid and dramatic pace. Uh, and you're also seeing it in very different forms. The problems faced by families in Africa and Asia are quite different from those in uh, Western Europe and North America and different, again, from those in Latin America. Uh, but there is a wide a sense that there's a wide range of issues uh, material, psychological, generational, the changes in relationships between men and women, crises and transformations about marriage and sexuality that all uh, needed to be addressed. Now there have been synods on other subjects, but as I said, they were rather cut and dried, and there could be there will be synods on other subjects in the years to come, I'm sure, following this, I think, uh, path-breaking new model. So can you describe a little bit of what happened particularly at this synod, or is it is it more proper to talk about the two synods that occurred? I think it's probably better to talk about the two synods. First of all, Uh, One of the things Pope Francis did in announcing the Synod was to say that the bishops from around the world, and by the way, there are about 270-some bishops at the Synod. They are elected representatives from the different regions of the church, different continents and regions and nations and so on. Um, But he announced that uh, they ought to consult the ordinary people in the pews about their views of the family, and in what ways the church should either modify or stress certain elements in its teaching and practice that would support the family. Uh, so that was a change. And then uh, at the uh, first uh, synod, a lot of questions came up. Uh, the ones that were naturally getting headlines uh, had to do with uh, whether the church should take a more, uh, I would say, understanding Uh, Positive attitude toward uh, same-sex relationships, uh, toward uh, the widespread phenomenon of cohabitation without marriage. And finally, the question of uh, Catholics who were uh, divorced and then civilly remarried and whether they could be admitted to uh, communion, uh, sacramental communion in the church. Those were the headline-grabbing ones, but then there were all sorts of other questions such as these things about, you know, the problems of families and under conditions of war and migration and refugee status and so on.
0: Now, I'm not going to name names, but in a diocese that I used to belong to – that consultation, the questionnaire that you mentioned, the bishops have been given a version of the questionnaire that was very technical and very theological. And in my particular diocese, the bishop's version of getting our input was simply to take that questionnaire and hand it to us. And I would say that most lay people were not equipped to begin to answer the kind of questions that were in that questionnaire because they were highly technical in some cases, theological questions. Was my experience in that diocese typical? Is that the way that most bishops tended to get consultation about this or were other bishops more savvy in terms of reaching out to their congregants?
1: I think there were a lot of dioceses in the United States that followed that model and I think there were very different initiatives taken in other countries and on other continents, sometimes trying to distill that kind of questioning down to – things that could be closer to what we understand as uh, opinion surveys. uh, And there were different practices in terms of whether the local conference of bishops, having received some kind of feedback, made public uh, what they had received or just were going to keep it to themselves and take it to the synod. And just the fact of calling for consultation – meant that a lot of parishes, uh, Catholic publications, uh, other organizations just took it upon themselves to gather information and make it public and uh, feed it back to the bishops to do with what they wanted. Uh, So I think the important thing was the uh, word from the pope that this was the procedure – that there should be consultation at every level. And in fact, within the last week of the synod that just completed, the second one around, he made a very uh, striking address on the, sorry to sound a bit technical here, on the notion of synodality. And in fact, saying there should be uh, something like this level of consultation at every uh, level of church life. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking
0: today with Peter Steinfels He's the co-founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture, and he's a former editor of Commonweal Magazine. He's the author of A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America, and we're discussing the recent synod on the family. Now, this word that you just used, synodality, can you define
1: that for us quickly? Well, that's uh, taking the model of the synod, which is a certain gathering of 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 bishops, uh, which has, an, as I suggested, an ancient precedent, and applying it to local uh, consultations. Actually, after the Second Vatican Council in the mid-60s, uh, a lot of dioceses and archdioceses had local synods uh, in which they gathered some sort of representatives of uh, parishes and lay leadership and so on, and uh, tried to work out a framework for or an agenda for what the local church ought to be doing. Now all of these still have a kind of consultative status. They don't cast votes and pass legislation. They do vote on things, uh, set priorities, make recommendations. But on the local level, those would be up to the local bishop. On the international global le- level, up to the pope then to deal with as he chose.
0: Just a moment ago, you mentioned that several independent groups sort of did their own surveys and gave that information to the various bishops' conferences. In your opinion, was that sort of independent consultation well-received by the bishops?
1: I think overall, yes. I think they they, it was well-received. I think it was well-received even by the organizers of the first the synod two years ago and then the one that has just completed, who tended to summarize a lot of the material that came up in the consultation in the working document uh, that they put out for the bishops before the synod. For example, obviously one of the big controversies in the church since the 1960s has been the question of the doctrinal condemnation of the use of contraception By Catholics, and the working documents—the first synod and the working document from the second for the second synod—were quite frank in saying that the consultation around the world uh, showed that uh, overall uh, Catholics were in disagreement and ignored uh, that church teaching. Uh, Didn't quite come up with a suggestion as what should be done about it, but it was one of the many findings. Uh, that was were relayed to the meetings. The bishops had those in hand when they gathered. You mentioned a moment ago the working document
0: that came out uh, in the in the first in the first meeting of the synod. There was some
1: controversy around that working document. Do I have that correct? Well, the biggest controversy was really about an interim report. Uh, these synods have lasted uh, a little bit more than two weeks, between two and three weeks, and halfway through the discussions at the first synod which, as I would emphasize again, was an open discussion. On the opening day of the Synod, the Pope said, I want you not to defer to me, not to defer to one another, but say what's really on your mind and in your heart. And uh, that took place. And then there was a summary of those documents that did suggest uh, that maybe the Synod was headed toward a more open stance toward cohabitation, a more open stance toward same-sex relationships, a more open stance toward uh, uh, those who were divorced and remarried to uh, receive communion in the church. That made headlines, and that did stir up controversy. And I would say that in some ways people thought that maybe the authors of that interim report had overreached in their summary of the mood of the bishops during the first part of that earlier synod. If you're
0: just joining us, we're speaking today with Peter Steinfels. He's co-founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture, and he's a former editor of Commonweal Magazine. He's the author of A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Hey there, listeners. I want to take a moment and tell you about our partner for producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's an old-timey organization. They got started in 1908 doing live events here in the Chicago downtown area. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio, and in the 1950s, they started out as one of the first religious television programs anywhere ever. And they're still doing radio and television. In addition to co-producing this program, the Sunday Evening Club makes regular, hour-long documentaries for PBS that focus on issues like violence, immigration reform, health care, and more, highlighting the good work being done by faith communities as they try to make these situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs they've been producing for more than 70 years at their website, csec.org. That's C-S-E-C. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Peter Steinfels, co founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture and a former editor at Commonweal Magazine. We're discussing the recent Synod on the Family in the Catholic Church and its impact for Catholics and for non Catholics alike. In the first part of the program, we explored some of the basic questions, what is a synod and what it means to the Catholic faithful that we're having one, and then moving on talking about the questions of how that synod is playing out culturally and the positions of some of the American bishops. Before the break, we were discussing an interim report that had been released at the midpoint between the two synods and the public reaction that followed. We pick up our conversation with
1: Peter Steinfels there. And there was a kind of reaction which has gone on over the intervening year uh, with bishops clashing about whether uh, there was a danger of the church uh, backing off its uh, very uh, strong stance on the indissolubility of marriage and other teachings. Uh, and uh, so in the second time around, you had a, a significant clash of opinions that managed even though the public was not invited to the actual discussions themselves those were reported in daily briefings and so the press had lots of good stories uh, about that and uh, some people think that's a very perilous state for the unity of the church and others of us myself included think that that kind of disagreement is uh, potentially very valuable, and that it, it doesn't necessarily mean the church is going to be divided, but these things have to be hashed out.
0: Now, when we have disagreement among the bishops, for our non-Catholic listeners, what, what sort of influence does the pope have at that moment? Mm-hmm. Is the pope sort of like a king and he can, he can get all the bishops in line, or do the bishops have some power to push back? How does that dynamic work?
1: Well, in theory and in principle, uh, they're, they're a little bit different. Emergence in Christian history of the papacy was really around the idea of settling matters of dispute. So when different parts of the church or different leaders within the church had a a serious uh, dispute about some important question, it would finally go to the pope in some way roughly parallel to the way the Supreme Court operates in the United States. That was uh, different than the idea of the pope being a little bit more like the White House administration uh, that has executive power to do things like appoint bishops and and make rulings having to do with local matters and so on, and the Vatican bureaucracy would be in. My, that has emerged in modern times, and obviously before we had modern methods of communication, uh, that really wasn't so practical. But the uh, your question about what happens when there's disputes uh, go on is yes, finally, if there is a dispute, the Pope traditionally will have the power. To decide one way or the other, which doesn't mean that justice with the Supreme Court, discussion may necessarily cease. Uh, there have been popes who have decided these things in the past, not central dogmas of the church, I would say, but many doctrinal and pastoral uh, matters where, uh, you know, after time there was further discussion, further pointing to precedence in church history. And there was a change, just as happens with the Supreme Court. And so,
0: if we look at the the development of the papacy, as you've talked about, um, if I if I think back to to my lifetime. Uh, I saw John Paul II and Benedict acting in a very different manner than I'm seeing Francis acting now. So what for, – again, for our listeners that maybe aren't paying as much attention as, as folks like you and me do, what are some of the basic differences between the papacy of Francis and what we saw in, in Benedict and John Paul II?
1: Well, here's where I come in as an old guy. I have lived through seven popes and uh, they've all been very different in uh, temperament priorities, and for that matter, body types. And uh, they. so if you live through seven, uh, you become a little bit less focused on the particular pope at hand. But you've mentioned uh, the two predecessors to Pope Francis, and they're very important because you had these remarkable changes in the mid-60s with the Second Vatican Council. And there was a sense on some of the people, including people who had strongly favored those changes, that things were flying apart after that. And there's no question that John Paul II was elected pope with a kind of platform to reconsolidate. And that meant in effect, uh, it meant two things in effect. It meant he became a world traveler. He focused attention on himself. He had enormous communication skills. So that was to counteract what people saw as a kind of flying apart. And secondly, uh, he – partly because he left it to others in the, among Vatican officials while he was traveling but also reflecting I think his own choice. He strengthened the role of the central uh, offices in Rome and uh, – Benedict, who had served uh, as an in an important post for John Paul, was certainly in line with that. so then you have a certain centralization, and I think the signal that has come with uh, Francis is not only does he want to reform and make accountable those centralized offices in Vatican in the Vatican, but he also wants to decentralize authority to uh, r- bishops in their conferences around the world and even to individual bishops. And some of that came out in the outcome of this last session uh, the, of the synod. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt.
0: We're speaking today with Peter Steinfels. He's the co-founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture, and he's a former editor of Commonweal Magazine. He's the author of A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America. And we're discussing the recent synod on the family. So there's a a columnist, uh, a man by the name of Russ Douthat, or Douthat. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce the the name. But um, recently, uh, in and around the, the second synod particularly, he has been writing columns that make it sound as if the Catholic church is teetering on the brink of collapse or schism. And I'm wondering if uh, if you would like to perhaps address that dire prediction of of his.
1: Right. Uh, well, I am an acquaintance of Ross. Uh, he and I have discussed this over dinner recently. I was at a meeting where I challenged some of his dire uh, scenarios for the future, which is essentially the danger of a civil war or a or a schism. Uh, he's particularly focused on any kind of change in church practice that might undermine the indissolubility of marriage as the church has taught it. And uh, I do think that he's overwrought. And uh, I do – I respect the idea that he sees these as serious issues. I think they are. I think the church has more of a long track record over time of change – and uh, change within a underlying continuity. And I think that he underestimates that historical perspective that shows that have been, and there can be, uh, changes in the church without sort of saying anything goes, everything's up for grabs. So I do think the world has changed. All this is done under the spotlight of the media now. And that affects people. I think that neither the official church nor the lay faithful have truly absorbed the idea and thought through the idea of how change takes place in the Catholic Church, as it obviously does. There's a technical term for that in theology, which is development of doctrine. We've tended to believe that the church can and should change that the holy spirit guides the church in these changes but we have a tendency to like to have it happen off stage in the wings so we don't have to uh, see it actually transpire and we can uh, we can minimize the fact that changes have taken place
0: Now, I've had another guest on this show, uh, a Catholic priest by the name of Bruce Cinquegrani, and when I was having my conversation with him, he pointed out that uh, Pope Francis is really the first pope to have gone through his entire training and priesthood under the umbrella of Vatican II. And first of all, do you agree with with that assessment, and and how do you think that that has affected Pope Francis' approach to the papacy?
1: well i I do agree with that assessment. I, I think that you know Benedict uh, was uh at Vatican II as an advisor, but Benedict also very much personally experienced a period of disarray in the church, and I would say disarray in in European academic life when he was a professor. so uh he didn't enjoy, in a sense. Perhaps what Francis enjoyed of being uh, on the other side of the Atlantic uh, some distance from Rome. I think that Francis' experience for a number of reasons made him – first of all, it made him a kind of a moderate. People forget that in uh, Argentina, he was not aligned with the most radical – of the liberation theologians, members of his own religious order, the Jesuits. So he was a moderate. He was also always very concerned with the grassroots and the question of those who were vulnerable and on the outside of society. And finally, he always had a series of experiences with the centralization of decision-making in Rome that made him Uh, I would say wary and maybe even use a stronger word uh, negative about that. So I I do think that the period of time and just as much the place that he comes from gives him a definitely different perspective. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Peter
0: Steinfels. He's co-founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture and he's a former editor of Commonweal magazine. He's the author of A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Unlike previous popes, Pope Francis doesn't come from Europe or the European context. He comes from the two-thirds world context, the Latin American context, and has what seems to be a very different set of priorities than a lot of the previous popes in in my estimation. What are, what are some of those shifts that come from, from his third world perspective or his, or his Latin American perspective that are significant and, and what do you foresee will be the sort of impact that that will have on the development of Catholic doctrine in the 21st
1: century? Well, I think the most important thing to stress is his priority about the human experience as it's lived uh, at the level of ordinary people. And many of the ordinary people that he dealt with uh, was were the ordinary people who were suffering from economic deprivation or social oppression uh, in his situation uh, in Buenos Aires. So there are ordinary people in other parts of the world who have who have different experiences. He's been asked about on one of his uh, trips, uh, he was asked in course of traveling, uh, does he ever think about the you know not so oppressed, not so economically deprived, but still uh, in many ways troubled middle classes of the uh, less impoverished nations and He confessed that he he needed to focus on that, but I think what what emerges from all this is a real concern that teaching at the level, church teaching and practice at the level of uh, a certain elevated level, a certain abstract level, really has to come to grips with the lives that people are living. And if people are suffering, um, if people are in some in-between state in terms of their relationship to the church, that's something that has to be addressed and cannot just be overlooked. Now, what does this mean for the future? I think for the future, it will probably be uh, most reflected in the kinds of appointments of bishops that he can make. I think it's a real mistake to think that the church works like The man at the top decides, and everybody falls in line. This is a kind of Marine Corps uh, model of the Catholic Church, which is widely held and probably doesn't even accurately reflect the Marine Corps. But uh, so the question is: is how do all these intervening levels and grassroots levels of church leadership reflect the priorities of the Pope? His biggest. Capacity in relationship to that is the kind of appointments he makes. What we do about the state of the priesthood and church leadership at the local level is still something that we haven't quite seen from uh, the pope. At least he's given signs about the kind of leadership he wants. But in terms of the institutional uh, arrangements for getting that leadership, we haven't seen that yet, what he might do. A moment ago we were talking
0: about the, uh, the impact of the Latin American context on the papacy of Pope Francis. I want to follow up with that. Is there a wide chasm of disconnection between American Catholicism and Catholicism in the rest of the world? It seems sometimes like the priorities of American congregants are very out of step with what we hear from – uh, the bishops that come
1: from the rest of the world. Am I hearing that right? I think there is a tendency uh, among Americans like, and I include myself, to think that everybody is like them and has the same problems. And I think that's uh, a real danger. And we need to keep in mind what percentage, and I'm sorry that I can't rattle off what percentage, it, but it's not that overwhelming of the world's uh, Catholic population of over a billion uh, is constituted by Americans. Yes, uh, the problems of the church here in many ways are different, but the problems of the church in different parts of the world are also different among themselves. The problems of the church in Africa are not at all similar to the problems of the church in Asia. For example, the Synod on the Family dealing with marriage uh, one of the, uh, responses of the Asian uh, bishops was, you have to take into consideration the fact that we are such a small minority in a, a area of the world populated by great world religions and that uh, therefore we have a much higher percentage of families that are of very different religious traditions. The situation in Africa is significantly different. Also, the situations in cities compare urban life with rural life, and you know, in areas like Latin America, including Francis's Buenos Aires, a lot of the problems that we have in the United States are have to do with the cosmopolitan and pluralistic nature of cities, and that's affecting the church around the world so i think we need to be very conscious that we in america are not the church but i don't think that we should be pushed out of concern for our own problems by the fact that that uh, others have have different ones
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Peter Steinfels. He's the co-founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture, and he's a former editor of Commonweal Magazine. He's the author of A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America. We're discussing Catholicism in America, and particularly in the context of the recent Synod on the Family. We'll be back in a moment. Each week we hear from listeners like you who write in to tell us that they love the show and a lot of you ask us what you can do to help support us. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. The number one thing you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. That word of mouth is so incredibly important. And if you listen to us through iTunes, there's a second thing you can do. They give you the means to give reviews to the show and it would be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review for us. I hear five stars are very popular. You can also give us money. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that we worked with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. So many good things come from that partnership, but one of the best by far is that your donations are tax deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and at csec.org, the website for the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Thank you for your support, and thank you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Peter Steinfels. He's the co-founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture, and he's a former editor of Commonweal magazine. He's the author of A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America. Now, I'm a Catholic. You're a Catholic. We're having a discussion about the Synod and the family, and, and that's a deeply technical Catholic matter. Why in the world should Protestants care at all about the discussion that we're having?
1: Well, I think Protestants should care. I think uh, people of uh, other faiths and people of no faith should care for uh, a number of reasons. I think certainly within Christianity, both Catholic Christianity, Protestant Christianity, and Eastern Orthodox Christianity, uh, there has been a certain convergence in the 20th century, and a certain real appreciation of the steps that were taken, for example, as at the Second Vatican Council, to bring different groups of Christians closer together. And I think that certainly Catholic Christianity has learned a great deal from Protestant Christianity's emphasis on Scripture. I think Protestants have learned a great deal from Catholic emphasis and Eastern Orthodox emphasis on ritual and liturgy. But um, more practically, about half the Christians in the world are Catholic Christians. One out of every five American citizens is a Catholic. So what stances, uh, what things are emphasized, what things are open, what things are seen as uh, matters to be more militant about, uh, these can make a real difference, well beyond the borders of the Catholic Church. They're 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 internal in one sense, but they really do have a reverberation uh, beyond church boundaries.
0: I'm going to expand our discussion here for a moment. Um, we've been talking largely about the Synod on the Family. But other events have been happening in the religious sphere here in America uh, in the last year that are notable, in particular the battles over religious freedom in various states and and statutes that have been uh, put forward to try and guarantee certain aspects of religious freedom. And oftentimes we've seen the bishops of the Catholic Church lining up Very strongly behind these sorts of measures and I wonder if you're, if you would be willing to, to give your take on sort of what the dynamic is that's going on there.
1: Well, I'm a kind of a a very strong supporter of First Amendment religious freedom rights. So I don't think that the concerns about those should be taken lightly or dismissed because sometimes they are reflections, not really of concerns about religious freedoms, but uh, concerns about underlying social issues: the discrimination against uh, people of same sex orientation, or in same or issue of uh, same sex marriage, questions of abortion, and so on. So I, I'm very cautious about about uh, looking closely at all these battles. I wasn't happy when people automatically declared that any opposition to the uh, non-discrimination proposals in the state of Indiana were branded as bigotry. Um, I do think that the current battle over same-sex uh, marriage and whether government officials should have a role in what is now under the Supreme Court uh, constitutional right. I think that the opponents uh, using religious freedom there have have overreached and may be uh, threatening to uh, undermine their own case. But I'm for a very careful consideration, and I think it focuses also on something important, that there are some liberals and i would identify myself as a liberal on the political spectrum who see freedom of religion primarily in terms of worship and congregational life they don't see freedom of religion in terms of all the ways in which the church and the catholic church in particular here carry out social services charitable acts educational provision and other things that are very important in society and are felt to be religiously mandated by our gospel beliefs. And when it comes to those things, uh, they're uh, a liberal sometimes hesitation to apply the First Amendment guarantees of religious freedom to Catholic hospitals, Catholic universities – Uh, you name it all, Catholic Charities, all those institutions. And I think that's that's of concern to me. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Peter
0: Steinfels. He's co-founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture, and he's a former editor of Commonweal Magazine. He's the author of A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. So this is the point in the show where I give you information about how to stay connected to us. So if you're on Twitter, uh, please do take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. And if you want to follow me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. That's D-A-U-L-T Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And a little later in the show, I'm going to take a moment and share with you some information about our Religion Moments podcasts. That's the other program that we do, and that's a daily podcast run by Katie Scrogan, where she turns moments in religion into a daily sort of two-minute gem. So that's coming in just a couple minutes. Thanks for listening, and looking forward to seeing you at the end of the show. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Peter Steinfels, co-founder of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture and a former editor at Commonweal Magazine. We're discussing the recent synod on the family in the Catholic Church and its impact for Catholics and for non-Catholics alike. Well, for a, a long period of time now, you have been a voice of public Catholicism here in the American context. And as you look back over that career... I wonder if if we could speak about both what has frustrated you and what continues to give
1: you hope. oh that's a uh, <laughs> That's a hard question to to uh, review myself. I think that it is distressing to see the polarization that has occurred in American political life overlapping with a polarization on religious matters. I think that I would be a strong defender of religion and religiously motivated citizenship, participation in public affairs, using the perspectives and the wisdom from religious traditions, using the motivations from religious commitments. But I think we've seen that particularly Uh, after the 1960s take place in a rather uh, simple-minded way that didn't make enough distinctions and uh, tended to then trigger a reaction in which there was a kind of opposition to any, blanket opposition to any uh, place for uh, religious thought or religious motivation in public affairs. So that's an unfortunate uh, part, although I have to say The resulting controversies probably helped get me uh, several of my jobs. I don't know about that. I wouldn't complain there. I think that uh, there has been an upsurge of uh, political involvement by religious bodies bringing to bear on public affairs the wisdom or the tradition of their own community and also the strongly felt motivation and commitment that they draw from their faith sometimes and too often that has been done in a way that reflects the more narrowly political uh involvement and passions of what we call the culture wars and political polarization in the United States so uh, there's always been a challenge to try and make important distinctions because one side seems to want to bring in religion as the answer to all kinds of questions which are complicated in a religiously pluralistic society, and the other side in reaction often wants to have a blanket removal of religious considerations from public affairs. So uh, the strong emotions – the political involvement uh, certainly gives uh, me hope for the relevance of religion to the future it gives me a lot of things to think about to work to work over to write about uh but it also uh, presents some serious problems
0: we've been talking today about the the recent senate on the family and its effect on both the, the Catholic Church globally but also the Catholic Church here in America. And we've also talked about the, the impact that the synod might have on non-Catholic religious uh, populations. Now that the synod is complete, now that these two segments of the synod have happened, what remains undone? What is, what is the unfinished business of the synod moving forward?
1: Oh, I think there's a lot of unfinished business. So we'll partly, we'll see the response of Pope Francis to the recommendations that the Synod has put in place. And there's a lot of those recommendations uh, that uh, were made overwhelmingly. They were voted overwhelmingly by the bishops participating. And it, they had to do with, in a sense, the more uh, fundamental, material, uh problems that families face around the world uh, their struggles to uh survive to find an equilibrium in a world in which relationships between men and women are changing in which uh, changes between generations are very rapid and maybe the best response there will have to be things we do as much as things we say or think about but overall If you were to sum up or if I were to sum up what I read in the recommendations, the overall emphasis would be we are not going to exclude people. Most organizations, most churches, uh, most entities, collective entities, most nations of any sort often define themselves By the way they exclude people and that cannot be completely ruled out there is a fundamental core of christianity and you go beyond it in all integrity you're not a christian anymore nonetheless uh, certainly the catholic church has maintained itself with a strong emphasis on boundaries and excluding at certain points And I would say the overall overall uh, conclusion I draw from what the bishops did was we are going to state our teachings, we're going to maintain them, but when people follow, follow them or question them or don't live up to them, we are going to be understanding and we're going to, as a former pastor of mine, would always say we can work with that. It often became a joke that he, no matter what uh, daunting situation he was uh, facing in terms of pastoral practice, he would say, we can work with that. And I think that that's the overall message of the recommendations that the bishops voted. We can work with that.
0: Well, Peter Steinfels, I have very much appreciated your wisdom this morning and uh, I've very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you very much.
0: We've been speaking today with Peter Steinfels. He is formerly an editor at Commonweal Magazine, an organization that he joined in 1964. He also served as a visiting professor at Notre Dame from 1994 to 95, and then as visiting professor at Georgetown University from 1997 to 2001. From 1990 to 2010, he wrote a regular column called Beliefs for the Religion Section of the New York Times. He has long been a professor at Fordham University and is co-director of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture. He's the author of several books, including The Neoconservatives, The Men Who Are Changing America's Politics, and A People Adrift, The Crisis of the Roman Catholic Church in America. We spoke to Peter Steinfels during a visit to Chicago that he made to lecture at Loyola University on the Synod and the Family as part of a Commonweal Speaker Series. If you've only recently begun listening to Things Not Seen, I'd like to make sure that you know about another program that we produce, a two-minute podcast called Religion Moments. It's hosted by my colleague Katie Scroggin, and each day she takes some aspect of religious history and turns it into this delightful little two-minute gem. So I wanted right now to close the show to share one of those recent religion moments with you. This is one that sort of fits with the theme of what we've been talking about today. I hope that you enjoy. From the producers of Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. This is a religion moment for January 22nd.
2: The papal security force, known as the Swiss Guard, was established on January 22nd, 1506. With a reputation for being the world's best soldiers... Swiss mercenaries had long been sought after by leaders throughout Europe, and had been employed by popes since the late 15th century. It was under Pope Julius II that a permanent force assigned to the Vatican was formed, and on that day in 1506, 150 Swiss soldiers arrived to take up their posts. Today, members of the Pope's guard are still all Swiss, and the 110 male soldiers who make up what has been called the world's smallest army must satisfy some unique criteria. In addition to being Roman Catholic and having passed through basic training, soldiers must be single and meet age and height restrictions. The guard's uniform has changed since the force came into being, and although the highly colorful striped dress now worn on ceremonial occasions does in part harken back to the Renaissance, it was designed in 1914, even while keeping the colors red, blue, and yellow to signify a connection to the Medici family. New guard members are admitted on May 6, the anniversary of the sack of Rome in 1527, when more than three-fourths of the unit were killed as they succeeded in getting Pope Clement VII safely out of the city, which Emperor Charles V had attacked.
0: Our thanks to Katie Scroggin for this report. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.